When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to another episode of Her Hoop Stats Unplugged. As always, you're here with Megan Gower and another big week in women's basketball world. Of course, free agency has started officially, um, lots underway, even some big moves since our last episode, which was just Monday this week, so only but a few days, but still some pretty big moves. We're not going to get too into free agency today, but if you want to hear about free agency, make sure you listen to Gabe and Christy on Courtside with Gabe and Christy. Came out Wednesday on the Hoops to Spot Cast Network. They talk a bunch about free agency, so tune in there for free agency stuff. And we're going to talk about a ton of NCAA content today, and I am joined by Calvin Wetzel. Hey, Calvin. How's it going? Hey, I'm good, Megan. How are you doing? Doing well. Excited to talk about everything going on in the NCAA this week. I feel like, I don't know why, maybe it's just like there's been a few less COVID positives because things have come down a little bit numbers-wise from the holidays, but it feels like there's been a lot more activity in the last like week or two in NCAA than there was kind of in the last month. Yeah, I'm not sure that if, uh, yeah, it does kind of feel like that. I'm not sure if it's actually, it'd be interesting to see the numbers if less games are getting canceled or if it's, more of that, you know, the, the more we get into conference games, the more you have ranked versus ranked in the power conferences. I don't know. It, it, I feel what you're saying, though. Yeah, I can't put my finger on what it is, but like it definitely feels like things are a little more fact-paced. I feel like I'm a little bit more into it because I feel like even though I obviously love college basketball, it was a little tricky, especially when things were stop and start around the holidays and like there was holiday breaks plus so many COVID pauses. I was having trouble like getting fully into it, but I feel like now like we're in February, we've got a lot of big games every week and obviously March is looking closer and closer every day. So I feel like I'm starting to get really excited for the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, there's, there are still getting some games getting canceled, but there, there are so many, you know, good matchups that even if one or two get canceled, we always have, we always have something good every week. 
this point exactly, in the year. Yeah. Agreed, agreed. And then I think we've also just seen so many upsets that like it's really fun to look forward to March and kind of anticipate what this tournament is going to look like. And I don't know, I feel like it's going to be a super fun one. I don't think anyone's got like a clear path to the final four or, any, or a national championship here. So it's it's going to be a really interesting and a really fun event to look forward to, assuming, you know, they get it all worked out of how it's going to play out. But I'm sure that news is coming soon, so I'm just trying to be positive at this point and look forward to March Madness. Yeah, definitely. De- you know, it. on one hand, we've talked about how we don't want to look forward to anything during COVID, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, like, they would not have gotten to this point in the season and played this many games if, if they weren't going to push through and have a tournament. Um, you know, whether they should or not, it's, it's money. They're yeah. going to have it. So whatever it looks like, we don't know, but it's going to happen. Yeah, so something to look forward to. Of course, we won't probably be covering it in person. We'll be watching it from my couch, but it'll still be fun. So definitely looking forward to that. But I think, not to get too ahead of ourselves and talk about March, I wanted to talk some about the Big Ten today because I feel like we haven't talked about them a lot this season. And there are so many good teams and good players that we should be talking about in the Big Ten. Um, so obviously brought you on because I feel like you are our resident Big Ten expert of sorts, so good to have you on for this. And I feel like there's so much we could talk about. They've got, what, is five teams, four teams in the top 25? It is uh, five at the moment, and there's an argument for six, although probably not anymore. Uh, a lot of people think maybe Iowa should be ranked, but they just lost uh, about 20 minutes ago as of when we're recording this, so... Um, Probably not going to be ranked next week either, but uh, Maryland, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio State, Northwestern, all in the AP Top 25. And even more than that in the net, I believe. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Because with the league, I, the Big Ten is so interesting to me because it's, you know, they don't ever have like really, well, I mean, Maryland has had its time at the top, but they don't often have like one of your top two, top three programs, but they've also always got this bulk of teams that are in that 10 to 25 range. And then the bottom of the league, I think is just a little bit higher up than the bottom of a lot of other power conferences. So they're deep in them. They don't have a lot of teams that are just like hanging around, you know, in the two hundreds of the rankings or anything like that. So uh, very like kind of condensed conference in that it's not that shocking if the bo- someone at the bottom can upset someone at the top, which keeps things interesting, but also helps for the net because it, that strength of schedule player is going to play in a lot there. So keeping those big 10 teams near the top of the net. Yeah. You know, it feels a little bit like the SEC, if the SEC didn't have South Carolina, you know, that, that uh, perennial final four contender or the, although like you said, Maryland is, is maybe, maybe in the next tier, pretty, pretty close to that level. But uh it's it's deep. It's an anyone can beat anyone league, especially um, at least you know one through ten, one through eleven, maybe, um, which makes which makes it really exciting every night. Exactly. I'm just looking at Charlie Cream's latest bracketology here, and they've got seven teams in the bracket right now too. So this speaks more to that depth. The only conference that has them beat is the SEC with eight teams in the bracket. So uh, just really strong league there. Exactly. Yeah. So, so they'd be dead even if you took out South Carolina. So (laughs) exactly. (laughs) There you go. So, yeah, I mean, obviously a lot to talk about. I feel like maybe we just start at the top of the standings. Maryland's nine and one in the conference right now, just one loss to Ohio state. And then they have one other loss of the season from back in November to Missouri state. So a 
really strong mid-major team there that they lost to early on. Um, but I feel like pretty much almost the clear favorite to win the Big Ten, but Ohio State is not far behind them either. I mean, they're back-to-back in the AP poll, 10th and 11th. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Ohio State obviously has that self-imposed ban on the tournament this year, on the uh, Big Ten tournament and the NCAA tournament. So that really is what they're playing for for their entire season, is that regular season Big Ten championship. That's their that's their carrot, so to speak. Um, they, you know, are sitting at two losses. It's hard to look at the standings with wins and losses because teams have played a vastly different amount of games. You have Maryland at the top at nine and one, and then Michigan's right behind them at five and one. They're both tied in the loss column with four, uh, you know, Maryland has four more wins, but right behind those two teams, you have Indiana, Ohio state uh, with two losses and um, Ohio state looks phenomenal. They just knocked off uh, Iowa in that game just, just earlier tonight Um, for the second time, you know, earlier this year, they, they ended Iowa's 42 game home winning streak. Um, in overtime and and uh, Iowa actually or excuse me Ohio State knocked off Michigan too for Michigan's only conference loss in that game where Nas Hillman put up 50 points so uh, oh, oh yeah we can we can talk about her in a little bit too but uh, yeah Ohio State's rolling right now it's a shame that we won't get to see them in the tournament um, because you know they're having such a phenomenal year but but I definitely think they're they're a challenger to Maryland um, if they can keep this rolling. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're right there with Maryland. And like you said, looking at conference standings right now is honestly on pretty much every league so confusing because the game differential, it's so hard to really decipher who's the best because not only is it like one team's played 10 games and the other team's played five, but then you also like when it's that much of a difference in games, you're really good at start digging into the schedules and figuring out, okay, who have they played and who have they not played uh, plays into a lot of like how you actually feel about where they stand in the conference. Because, you know, if they've only played five games and it's against the bottom of the conference, that's really different than playing 10 games and having seen, you know, some of the top teams maybe even twice. Uh, so it's all a bit crazy to decipher. But like you said, I think Maryland and Ohio State are pretty much the two top clear challengers here. And I mean, Michigan probably has an argument as well. I think with Michigan is since they lost to that Ohio State game where Nassau put up. 50 points. Uh, they haven't played a game since they've been on pause from COVID since then. So we haven't seen them in action in over two weeks now, which is unfortunate. I believe Michigan's entire athletic department is on pause from a case of the new strain of the virus. They are. Yeah. And that pause, I believe should be ending soon. Although who knows? Um, it was, I think supposed to be a two week pause starting on the 23rd or 24th of January. Hopefully we get to see them back soon. I know a lot of the players wanted to play um, since or thought that, you know, it was a little bit too strict to shut down the whole athletic department. There's some controversy there, but um, yeah, definitely hope we can get to see them back on the court soon. Cause uh, like we said, they're, they're breathing down Maryland's neck tied in the loss column. At least we should mention too, Ohio state is also Maryland's only conference loss. In addition to being Michigan's only conference loss, uh, knock, knock them both off. And actually there was another Ohio state, Maryland game, uh, you know, that got postponed in, it sounds like they're not sure yet if that's going to get made up. Uh, I would love to see it get made up. I think a lot of people would. I would love to see the rematch of that game. And that might be what Ohio State needs in order to win this league is to get another another shot at Maryland to be able to uh, make up a game in the standings head-to-head. Yeah, agreed. I hope that will get you know rescheduled as well. I think, to me, I feel like the odds are better than 
they might seem because even though like when you look at the schedules for these teams right now it's like they have so many rescheduled games so it looks like there's like schedule is so full until the end of the regular season it's hard to imagine that any of these schedules are going to go off without a hitch and that there's not going to be some pause somewhere else that's going to hopefully allow them to reschedule well not I shouldn't say hopefully because in an ideal world no one would go on pause again and the virus would be gone but I think that there's a pretty good shot that things get messed up enough that that game gets back in the book somehow. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I, I can't remember who it was now. I want to say it was Lisa Bluter, uh, head coach of Iowa, actually advocated for not playing the Big Ten tournament, um, I heard recently, and instead using that week to make up some of these games. I don't know if they're going to go that far. We'll see. But uh, I definitely think some of these games, especially a game like uh, like Ohio State-Maryland that's you know that crucial to the top of the standings, they're going to find a way to to get it made up. The, the interesting thing, though, um, I'm 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 interested in your thoughts about this. Actually, there's uh, you know we look at Maryland at nine and one, Michigan at five and one. Who knows how many games each of these teams are going to be able to play? There, there's a decent chance that we see some sort of convoluted scenario at the top of the standings where two teams have played a different number of games, and it's unclear who actually has the quote better record. Um, I, I heard recently about a conference in Division Two. It's the the MIAA, I believe it is, uh, who's doing basically how they're doing it is they're weighting um, the winning percentage in conference is eighty percent of the formula, and the other twenty percent of the formula is the percentage of scheduled games that you actually play. So if you play. 16 games and you had 20 on the schedule that's that's an 80 percent there and then you also have your winning percentage and they weight those two together in the formula and that decides who wins the conference regular season i think that's actually a pretty cool way to do it um you know whatever the numbers are just to have some sort of weight some sort of objective formula so it's a little bit more clear who who wins the conference um i don't know if the big 10 is going to figure out something like that but what do you think about that this is interesting. It's the first time I've heard of it. To me, I'm like, you got to come up with some kind of method because there has to be some objective way to look at it. And I don't know that just looking at straight win percentage or straight record is entirely fair, just the way things are falling right now. I don't know that I love that approach because to me, I feel like there's a little bit of a weirdness of like you getting like penalized for taking the proper precautions and pausing for as long as you should while you have COVID issues. I don't know. I feel like every school seems to have a little bit different rules. So I don't know that I love that approach, but I do wonder if like they could come up with some kind of, I don't not like an RPI within the conference, but something like that, that kind of takes into account how much each team wins, but then also like what, you know, part of the conference they played, right? Because the team, like, looking at, like, the Big Ten that, you know, if you have a bunch of wins over, like, Penn State and Purdue and Wisconsin that's, you know, 1-12 in the conference right now, that shouldn't be the same, like, as, you know, having a win over Maryland or a win over Ohio State. So I feel like they've got to come up with a kind of a way to figure that out. But I'll be interested to see what they do. Or you just leave it simply as, you know, win percentage and call it a day because I mean at some point like there's only so much they can do this season and a lot of things are changing and quite frankly if you're like not going to play a conference tournament what does it really matter exactly I guess the the regular season title is something that people care about but you're not seeding a conference tournament or anything so it gets you a little bit less um, 
of a problem there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely a valid point you bring up about you know not penalizing teams for taking proper precautions. I do I do think uh, you know it's it's a good idea in general that 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 conference had to come up with some sort of objective formula. It's probably not the best formula they could have come up with because you know for the reasons you said you don't want to penalize teams for not playing games. You don't want to penalize teams for playing games either. So there's a there's a weird middle ground that you got to find but you know if they do go to straight winning percentage then it's going to be interesting if you have a team you know say at uh 10 and 5 so they win two-thirds of their games and another team is at eight and four also winning two-thirds of their games uh i guess if you really are going to come down to it and go with straight winning percentage you have to call that a tie and you have to call them co-champions same way you would in a regular year if two teams have the same record um, because that's the exact same winning percentage, and I don't know what else you do um, if you don't, get, you know, like I said, if you don't reward teams for playing games or for not playing games. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a big mess. I think it's going to be a general rule of thumb heading into this postseason from everything from conference titles to conference tournaments that they're played to trying to seed an NCAA tournament in a year where there's just like not a lot of data points between these leagues. I think everything's just going to be a bit of a mess. <laughs> yeah, everyone's figuring everything out on the fly. That's sort of the theme. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, so we talk a little bit more about Maryland as a whole. I mean, I know we talked about them being at the top of the conference, but we didn't talk a whole lot about you know where their strengths are. I think, I mean, the one thing that obviously just jumps off the page about them is they're averaging 91.5 points a game first in the country. It's a lot of scoring on this team. Yeah, you know, and they lost Angel Reese four games in. She's still hoping to maybe be back uh, late February, early March. We don't know for sure, but she was having a, a fantastic start to her freshman season, and and they're still just they haven't lost a beat. Um, like you said, their their scoring is is so balanced. Um, with Katie Benzin, huge huge uh, get for for Brenda Freeze as a transfer from the Ivy League, knocking down over fifty percent of her threes on high volume. Uh, Ashley Owusu, you know, running the point and and uh, av- averaging almost 20 points, five rebounds, five assists. Um, it's a fun team to watch. Watch them knock off Wisconsin today for uh, Brenda Freeze's 499th win, which which ties her for most all time at Maryland. She's going to go for number 500 in their next game. Like you said, their their offense is uh, actually number one in the country, not just in the Big Ten, in terms of uh our hhs offensive rating at at 121.8 that's points per 100 possessions uh for our listeners so so they're they're rolling they're a really tough team to stop i think they made like their first seven shots in that wisconsin game today and some of them were contested it just felt like there's not a lot that wisconsin can really do they score in transition they score in the half court it's a it's an exciting team yeah, exactly. I mean, just like you said, high volume scoring, but then also incredibly efficient scoring. They're third in the country for points per play, fourth for points per shooting attempts. Like, it's a fun team to watch. I mean, the defense probably leaves a little bit to be desired, but in general, a very fun team to watch. Yeah, sometimes for a lot of people, that might make it even even more fun, right? If you have a team with <laughs> high octane offense and okay defense, um, that's... I don't know where you stand. I actually enjoy watching defense too. I know a lot of people enjoy those 93 to 87 games, um, which Maryland has a lot of. So, 
definitely fun yeah, to watch. I mean, I'm a UConn men's basketball fan, so I, I enjoy defense. <laughs> if anyone else watches them, yeah, they're always a defensive team. But um, yeah, I think the other, I mean, it keeps it exciting though, right? When a score, a team scoring 90 points a game, you're, it's really hard to get bored during a game like that, even if they're winning by a ton, because it's just going to be fun to watch those offensive stats and then... Like I said, I mean, they're incredibly efficient, but then they're also incredibly good on the offensive glass, too. So just kind of a team that's capitalizing so often when they're going down the offensive end of the court, which, I mean, it's fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, it makes you wonder what their ceiling is if Angel Reese is able to come back. You know, she was she was doing some serious work on the offensive glass, and they're already, obviously, like you said, a good team in that area. Um, they could be, they could be I, don't, I don't know if it's fair to call a team like Maryland, who's borderline top 10 team a sleeper uh but you know in terms of the final four i think you know if angel reese is able to come back full strength um and play how she was in the first couple weeks of the season this could be one of those teams that gets uh you know a three seed and and is a threat to maybe knock off a two or one and make the final four yeah, I would agree with that. And I think sleeper is a fair term because I don't think it's a team that you hear people talking about going to the final four at all. People talk about the top and then they talk about, you know, these teams in the middle range that got these big names, like someone like a Kentucky that has a Ryan Howard and players like that, that just kind of lend themselves to like, everyone's like, okay, what is this player going to do in March and how far can they carry their team? But Maryland is good, but they don't have that like one big name that's carrying them so I think it doesn't really lend them well to that discussion necessarily so I think sleeper is a fair word I mean it's very possible that especially if they get Angel respect that they're going to be a clear top 10 team in the nation three seed could make a run in the tournament that people just aren't talking about right now yeah to your point you know I just pull up their stats here they have five players averaging uh between 13 and 19 points a game they have six players averaging between five and seven rebounds a game. Um, and they have six players averaging between two and five assists a game. So it's just as much of a committee effort, you know, as as you're ever really going to see for a team of that level, which is, which is part of why they're maybe a little bit uh, underhyped, if you want to say that, because they don't have that one. I mean, Ashley Owusu does get some some pubs sometimes, but but they really don't have that, like you said, Ryan Howard. Um, that that name that that draws draws all the attention exactly which I think is you know kind of a normal narrative in basketball right like it's basketball and when you look at pros and everything it's like it's definitely a game where the attention leans itself to the stars but that doesn't mean that this Maryland team isn't going to be really good because they've got like you said five players or four players that are consistently playing at that level night in and night out so they're, they've got a lot of weapons on the floor, which can make a team harder to beat because a lot of these teams that got have one big star, if you shut that per player down, there's not as many options for them. Where Maryland, you shut one of these players down, you've got three, four other players that are going to make you pay. Yeah, or even if you don't necessarily do a great job in shutting that player down, but if they just happen to have an off night or they happen to get in foul trouble, um, you know, having having being too reliant on any any one player always is is a dangerous uh, way to live. You know, sometimes it works out great. That player goes off and wins the game single-handedly. And, and other times uh, it's, it's like they say, you live and die by the three. Some teams live and die by that one star and Maryland definitely doesn't do that. For sure. 
to switch it up to kind of a different narrative to talk about a team that does get a living die by a star. I mean, we could talk about Naz Hillman for her Michigan. Yeah, yeah, definitely not not exactly the uh, same same type of deal as what Maryland's got going on. We mentioned Naz Hillman's fifty point game. Uh, she's averaging twenty six and twelve. Uh, you know, beyond a double double, she's she's shooting uh, over sixty three percent from the floor. She's she's just a load, and uh, she's she's my Big Ten Player of the Year. She's in the uh, conversation, I actually believe, for National Player of the Year, depending on you know how many how many games Michigan gets to play when they come back and how she how she fares down the stretch after the layoff. A, a lot of a lot of teams have have come back a little bit rusty from those layoffs, so we'll see how that affects her specifically. But I think she's in that conversation, you know, at least as an All American. For sure, I think I've seen her name on quite a few watch lists at this point and obviously well deserved. I mean, that 50 point game is just absolutely insane. Michigan still doesn't manage to get the win, but I mean, 50 points is just kind of something unfathomable. I don't, I don't know the last time I, that a NCAA player scored 50 points in a game off the top of my head, to be honest. Um, but it's definitely not something that we see often. So just really incredible performance from her there, but I think it's also just kind of indicative of, what we see from her night in and a night out. She's not putting out 50 points a game, but averaging 20 and 12 is just just really, ins- or 26, sorry, and 12 is really high-level performance. Has to be in the conversation as one of the best front court players in the country. And like you said, I mean, I feel like she should basically be a lock for Big Ten Player of the Year if Michigan can play enough points, or play enough games to make that reasonable. And then also in that national player of the year conversation for sure yeah and you know she what she does for their offense is she just she draws so much attention on the block that if she's not scoring 50 she opens things up for you know the rest of the starting lineup uh is is all shooting at least decently from three they're all shooting at least 32 percent um leah brown is shooting over 50 percent um, from three, so so Nas Hillman, you you know, really just opens things. I as a guard, I would love to play with someone like Nas Hillman, you know, because I would be open all the time. Um, so yeah, I, to answer your question though, by the way, I, I'm pulling it up here on uh, shameless plug for the Her Hoop Stats research tool. Um, the last player to score 50 points in a game was uh, last season. Actually, DJ Williams of Coastal Carolina scored 51. Last major conference player to do it is probably no surprise, uh, Kelsey Plum from Washington, who's college's all-time leading scorer. Um, so just get that tidbit in there. Yeah. So I mean, Kelsey Plum is obviously some good company to be mentioned with. So um, makes sense that she would be the most recent uh, major conference player to do so. But yeah, I mean. The- now, someone is the type of player, though. I feel like there's a difference between teams that like live or die by one player that's more of like a guard where you've got to have a good shooting night, but she's the type of player that just has such a strong presence inside. That, I mean, to average something insane like 26 and 12, there's just not a lot of people in the country that can compete with her. And when you're a front court player like that, it's something that's, I think, can be a little bit more consistent. So I think, assuming Michigan gets, you know, back out there and it's you know coming back from quarantine hopefully soon get some more of these big time games in 
maybe it's really more of a three-way race at the top of the Big Ten. I mean, everyone's going to talk about Maryland and Ohio State, you know, the highest rankings in the AP poll, but just the one loss to Ohio State for Michigan, too, and a player like Naz Hellman on the floor kind of lends itself to making Michigan a contender to upset one of those, you know, top teams if those games happen. Yeah, it's really it's really a shame that Michigan had to go on pause because I mean, who knows? They could be nine and one tied with Maryland right now. Um if if they had if they had been able to be playing this whole time. We don't know. Um but I'm I'm excited for them to be back because they are certainly a threat to win the Big Ten and make a deep run in the tournament. Agreed. So hopefully we'll see them back soon. While we're still on the Big Ten before we move on to a couple other topics, we should we should touch on Iowa a little bit um mentioned they just lost to Ohio State but they're still uh certainly the best unranked team I think in the Big Ten um and and Caitlin Clark is you know a star freshman one of the best freshmen in the country averaging over 25 points per game but they also have they have a a really fun dynamic duo with uh Monica Sonano down low averaging 20 points per game on 70 percent shooting which is just it's, it's comical. I don't know how how you can maintain that level of efficiency while also scoring twenty points per game. That's seventy percent. You almost never see that anyway. And when you do, it's someone who's you know scoring like four points a game off the bench. Um, but it's uh, it's it's fun to watch that duo you know together in, in the pick and roll and and watch uh, Monica Sonano sort of sort of carry on that Megan Gustafson tradition at Iowa of of those bigs who, who dominate in the paint. Um, so, so I feel like we should, we should just throw them in there as well as, as one of the big tens, more, more fun teams and, and maybe uh, also a sleeper, if you will, um, in the sense that, that they're in the middle of the pack in the standings right now, they're six and five and, and they're not ranked. I don't believe they have been all year, but, but they're a team that can knock off anyone on any given night. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at Iowa stats right before recording this and obviously knew we would be talking about Caitlin Clark and have seen that Monica Susano is good, but that 70% number just jumped off the page at me. I was just like, how are more people not talking about her as well? I mean, I think we've seen plenty of hype around Caitlin Clark and how good she is, but I mean, 70% from two is, or from the, in the floor in general, I mean, she takes all her shots from two, but that's insanely efficient to be at that volume, especially. So, I mean, I think I'm incredibly impressed by that. And then, I mean, of course, Caitlin Clark, right? 25 points a game, six assists a game, one of the best freshmen in the country. She's got to get the turnovers under control a little bit, but I think considering the amount of time the ball is in her hand, they're not as bad as they look. So uh, really fun duo there. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a duo that, that plays off of each other very well. Um, and it's, it's a little bit, you know, we talked about some teams have that one star, uh, that maybe you're too reliant on, but, but when you have two like that, you know, if, if one of them is having an off night, which I don't think Monica Sanano knows what an off night is, cause you don't shoot 70% if you ever have an off night, but, um, if one of them, if one of them does have an off night, you, you have the other one to rely on. Um, and obviously their skill sets are as polar opposite as you can get. So um, definitely, definitely a really tough duo to guard, and and one that I think could could make some noise in the tournament. I would not want to see them, you know, across from me in the bracket if I'm if I'm a coach in in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially a player like Caitlin Clark, I've seen her go off for thirty quite a few times. Um, 
So not the type of player you want to face in the NCAA tournament. I think it's just players like that. I mean, not just Caitlin Clark. There's plenty of players in the in the game that can play like that, but they're the type of players that you know create Cinderella runs in the tournament and. Um, not the type of player you want to have to face. So they're going to be fun to watch in the tournament, though, as long as they're not facing the team that you're hoping is going to win. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, uh, to to your point that you mentioned about Caitlin Clark and the turnovers, and, you know, maybe she gets criticized a little bit too much for that. She's actually, in terms of turnover percentage, she's slightly better than average uh, in the country. Um, but she has the number one usage rate in all of college basketball, which, of course, is going to lend itself to more of everything including turnovers, also points and good things as well. Um, but yeah, definitely the type of player, you know, like you said, you wouldn't want to see across from the bracket. You know, as a UConn fan, that that could be a matchup that we could see in, in a one versus eight or one versus nine type of game. Uh, so that I, uh, I I would love to see, honestly, Paige Beckers and, and Caitlin Clark meet up in the second round, maybe the two best freshmen in the country. I'm not sure if you would like that as someone rooting for UConn, but as a neutral fan, I think it would be a fantastic matchup. No, I think it would be a fun matchup. I think Twitter might expose, <laughs> explode with the amount of, like, I don't know, there's just so much chatter about the two of them, and, like, I don't know, a little bit maybe too much, like, one or the other, like, they're both very good, let's just accept that and move on, but, um, yeah, I think it would be a lot of fun to watch that. It, it, honestly, it would probably get a lot of hype going around, you know, the women's tournament, it's kind of two pretty big names out there two of the bigger names that are coming out in the media right now in terms of you know players to be watching so would be a fun matchup to watch yeah definitely i tell you yeah twitter twitter that would be something else but uh, you know if 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 i was on that eight or nine line and and yukon's on that number one uh i'm gonna probably be rooting for iowa over whoever the whoever the eight or nine is in the first round just so we can get that matchup uh but but like you said twitter Twitter, Twitter might have some uh, has some things to say about it. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting though, right? <laughs> definitely. That uh, that feels like it's a segue. Actually, speaking of Twitter and Paige Beckers, <laughs> to something else we wanted to touch on tonight. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully we won't get too many people in our mentions bringing this back up because I think got created quite a bit of controversy on twitter this weekend but uconn was playing DePaul sunday afternoon um page beckers had a fantastic game i believe went for i i should know the exact point total let me pull it up real fast here what kind of uconn fan are you megan <laughs> you don't have this stuff memorized <laughs> well while, while megan's looking that up uh just for our listeners if you want to direct any hate mail to us it's at c wetzel 31 and at megan gower G-A-U-E-R at Twitter. Um, go slam us for our takes. Um, I, maybe I should speak for you. I welcome it. Um. <laughs> I welcome it too. As long as people are respectful. Otherwise, I'll, we'll not answer. Yeah, re- respectful um. hate mail only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you start calling me an idiot, you're probably not going to get any more responses from me. But anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, she goes off for not 27. That was Arkansas. 22 points against DePaul and 12 assists. So really impressive performance from a freshman in general. I mean, she's been on a bit of a tear for UConn the last three games. Anyways, but Alex Bazell, who is a WNBA and NBA trainer, trains like Candace Parker, Trey Young on the NBA side, and is also, of course, engaged to Nafisa Collier. Um, tweeted that 
Paige Becker is, would be a top five point guard in the WNBA right now. Which, I mean, is obviously a hot take. I don't think it's a take I fully agree with, but it got a lot of attention on Twitter. Um, which, in uh, a lot of, I think, angry attention on Twitter is how I would phrase it. Do you think that's a fair way to assess that it? Is, that is a fair um, fair statement, yes. Yeah. Um I think a lot of people thought it was disrespectful to the talent that's still in the league or that is currently in the league. Um, maybe just a little outlandish to even suggest that a freshman could play in the WNBA. Um, I think the thing that strikes me about this is I think it's not something we talk about, right? Like we don't talk about freshmen and like, could this freshman be like a number one pick in the draft right now? We don't have these conversations. So of course, like seeing that, I think naturally like sets people off a little bit because it's just not something that's normalized to talk about. But I think when you look at the men's game, we, uh, we, you have a different situation, right? I mean, you used to have players that went straight from high school to the NBA and now they have the one and done rule. So you have to be a year removed from high school. So we see most of the talent that's going from college to the NBA is freshmen. I mean, you do get your players that play two years, four years, whatever, and then move on to be pros. But I think pretty consistently at this point, your top draft picks, year in and year out, tend to be freshmen. Um, and of course, not all of them go into the league and perform at like a top five player type level to begin with. But I think there are cases of it. So that's what kind of why I thought, like, I was kind of surprised how much offense people taught, took to the suggestion just because I think, you know, we've started to see a little bit, right, that players started have started slowly more frequently over the last couple of years to leave a year early to go to the WNBA. We've seen, you know, Jewel Lloyd was kind of one of the first ones to do it, but we've continued, like, Jackie Young did it. We've seen continued kind of development of players doing that. And I think the general direction it goes, I mean, it's not even allowed at this point. Like, you have to be finished from college or uh, your birthday has to fall in such a way that you are, like, old enough by the year junior end of your junior season to leave early, but I wouldn't be surprised if I don't think it's a near future thing, but 10 years down the road, there's we're back in a point where a freshman from college can go play in the WNBA. So I think starting to have these conversations, I don't think it's disrespectful to anyone. I think it's recognizing that there is probably talent that comes into the college game that doesn't need to play four years in college to go perform and be a professional athlete. Yeah, you know, it's the the disrespect point is is interesting. I'm not sure if I've seen on Twitter any current players uh, say whether they felt disrespected by that or not. Uh, maybe I missed it. Um, that would be really what I would be looking for if that's disrespectful or not. Is kind of how how the current point guards in that in that conversation really feel about it. Um, I sort of love it and hate it because you know I I love like you said that. Any anytime we can get sort of a big conversation going about something in women's basketball, um, and and just add to the add to the publicity of the sport, um, I think is generally a good thing. Um, I, I also definitely don't agree with the take. Um, I, I do like agree with you um, in the sense that you know you look at the NBA. I mean, even even LeBron James, we talked about this, was not an All Star in his rookie year. Um, when he was, and he came straight out of high school, obviously when that was still allowed. So he was, his rookie year was the age that Paige Beckers is now. Um, so, you know, in the NBA, there are, there are stars who, who can play in the league, certainly 
at at age 18 or 19, you almost never see anyone at that age actually be that all-star level, top five level type of player, um, even if they eventually become that a few years down the road. Um, and I actually think it's harder in the, in the WNBA uh, because the league is just so much smaller. You know, so if you're an 18 year old and let's say you would currently be the 150th best player in the NBA, there's 30 teams. That means you're a starter in the NBA. If you're the 150th best player in the WNBA, you're not in the league because there's, you know, quote unquote, 144 spots. Right. So it's I think it's even harder to look at an 18 year old, 19 year old on the women's side and say that that player would be ready for the league because the league is so much smaller and harder to break into. Um, I certainly think if we were to start allowing women's players to come out of high school or freshman year of college, like on the men's side and be drafted, um, that we would see some very high draft picks from younger players, such as Paige Beckers or maybe in Aaliyah Boston or someone like that. But I think that's because teams, uh, you know, in the NBA or in the WNBA, they draft on potential and a player like Paige Beckers, you, 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 her potential is through the roof. She has potential to be way better than just a top five point guard. And, and if you're a team building for the future, you're going to draft on that potential. But if I were playing a game today, I would not take Paige Beckers in the top five. And I don't even know if I would take her in the top 10 to win right now, because I think the levels are just so vastly different. I know people love to compare them for players or for teams, you know, people, College football love to always say like, oh, would Alabama beat the Jets or whatever? And like, no, they'd get smoked, you know, <laughs> but but people love to have that conversation. And and um, but but I don't I don't think if I were trying to play a game today that I would I would take Paige Beckers anywhere near the top. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with that, too. I think that she has things she needs to improve on. But I think the fact that, like, right, you, like, even pause a little bit to say, like, would she maybe be you take her top 10, like, warrants the conversation. Like, it's not as outlandish as people, I think, made it out to be, necessarily. The WNBA is a small league, which definitely makes it harder. But, I mean, I think we see cases of it in the NBA, like, Trey Young, I think, is the most recent one that I kind of found just quickly looking. But he was an all-star in his second season, like that's you're more than a top five point card if you're all-star right like there's not five point cards in your all-star game typically so I think we see it happen and he wasn't a number one draft pick either he's like the fifth draft pick but um I think it's not as crazy as people make it out to be I don't think we're there yet but I think we're probably heading in that direction and I think we see that there's I think better and better talent out of high school coming. And I'm, I think that also comes from just the way like sports have changed and stuff. Right. Like I think there's a time when kids like growing up played, like, you know, you played basketball in the winter and soccer in the fall. And now I think there's a lot more focus. So I think you're more experienced coming out of high school. I mean, these playing AAU and all these bigger circuits that are becoming, obviously they became popular in the men's game first. And now we're, growing in popularity in the women's game as well. I think it just lends to being more experienced out of high school than what people used to be, which is why I think the game kind of evolves in that way at the professional level. Yeah. You know, and I mean, that, that's a good point. I definitely don't think, uh, you know, Alex's take was as crazy enough to maybe deserve all the hate, if you will. Um, I mean, I don't think it's crazy enough to sort of cancel out the value of having that conversation about women's basketball. Um, I to play devil's advocate about about Trey Young or cases like that though. So so in his second year, he was an all star, right? So he played one year at Oklahoma, 
one year as a rookie year and then his second year uh, in the NBA was his third year out of high school. So that'd be the equivalent of like Paige Beckers as a junior, which I think it's very reasonable to say that it went by the by the time Paige Beckers is a junior or maybe some other players next year, Leah Boston is a junior um, that they would be able to be, you know, better than just a starter in the WNBA at that point, um, whether it's an all-star or at least, you know, a high level contributor. Um, I, I just think as a, as a freshman, it's, there's not a lot of players that I really think Paige Beckers would have an easy time guarding in the WNBA right now. And and that's not to say she won't, because like I said, when, when she gets there, she's a great defender at her level. And when she gets there, she's going to be a great defender in the WNBA. But I'm just picturing, you know, her trying to guard a Chelsea Gray, for example. I, I, don't, I don't think she'd have a very easy time. Yeah, exactly. So um, that's nothing against her. I think he's just... Defense is defense is hard, and sometimes offense translates quicker because you know when you're open for three in college and you're open for three in the WNBA, that's basically the same thing except for a step back for the three point line. But it's really not very different. But playing defense is a lot different because the person you're guarding is way quicker, way bigger, way way faster, way stronger. So, so, uh, so I, do, I, yeah, I, I don't think she would be top five right now. But I love having the conversation though on Twitter, and, and I hope we can have more interesting conversations like this yeah i think that was my biggest takeaway from the whole thing too right it's like it's it's not accurate right now i don't think i mean alex knows more than i do so who knows but it's, i don't think it's accurate right now it's still worth the conversation and it's a conversation we should get a little bit more comfortable having because i think we're probably going somewhere where we're going to be closer to that and i mean i don't know that we're gonna be talking about a college freshman that's the top point guard in the lead but I think we're going to be talking about college freshmen that are freshmen in college but are ready to be playing in the league. And I think normalizing that conversation is an important step. And I think um, on the women's side, I feel like, I mean, there's a lot of WNBA fans, but there's a lot of college fans that kind of follow college players into the WNBA, and that's how they get into the WNBA. It's how I got into the WNBA so a player with the amount of hype that there is around Paige Beckers, I mean, she has like 600,000 followers on Instagram. The WNBA as a whole has a million followers. So making that connection early is, is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, you know, like you said, Alex knows, knows way more than probably both of us combined. He works with the players. So um, definitely, definitely it's not like he's some random schmuck on the Twitter with three followers who thinks he, he knows everything and doesn't know anything. <laughs> but uh yeah, it's 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 it'll be interesting if you like you said in in a decade from now or so if we do see uh, a move towards maybe allowing players to go younger. To me, the conversation would be less about would this eighteen year old be a top five player, or top five at their position right now, versus like would they be drafted top five because because like I said, the draft is based so much on potential that, I mean, if we had, if Paige Beckers were eligible for the draft, she might easily get drafted top five, probably higher than that. Um, so we could talk about like, who would you take, you know, Ari McDonald or Paige Beckers? And that's a great conversation, but yeah, it's, it's a good point about bringing those fans from college to the WNBA. Cause I think there's a lot more college fans. I could be wrong about that, but because there's 300 some teams compared to 12 teams you know most cities don't have a WNBA team but but a lot of cities do have a d1 college team so so college is a great way to sort of bridge that gap and, and introduce people to the WNBA like you said 
Exactly. And even looking at, like, I'm in Connecticut and looking at, you know, the fans and the attention that UConn women's basketball gets here. I mean, granted, you, I mean, UConn is, like, the gold standard of college basketball in a way in terms of fan- not saying that they are the best team in the country right now. Just saying that, like, I mean, they have 11 national championships. Don't hate on me for trying. <laughs> I feel like people get offended by that. But, like, they've got 11 national championships. They have the biggest national name recognition, I think, in terms of college women's college basketball. And there's a stark difference between the support that UConn gets versus the support the Connecticut Sun get here in a place where, I mean, there's a ton of women's basketball fans and it doesn't always translate. So I think it's important to look at how do you translate that college fan base to the WNBA fan base. I think it's an important part of growing the league. Right. And that's, you know, that's even in a state, like you said, that does have a WNBA team and you still, UConn gets all the love. And then if you look at a state like South Carolina or like Tennessee um, you know, that don't have WNBA teams, the the uh, the fan base is just that more uh, congregated around around the college teams. So so, yeah, I think the, the conversations I think you, you hit the nail on the head about those those conversations opening doors to to maybe introduce people to the WNBA. Exactly. All right. So, I mean, we hit on the Big Ten. We hit on. Paige Beckers and all of the Twitter drama from this weekend. So we wrap it up talking about a little bit of kind of March-ish topic with wins above the bubble. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I so so wins above bubble. I know you know what it is for our listeners. It's uh, it's basically what it sounds like. It's um, how many more wins does your team have than what a bubble team would be expected to have against your schedule? So. If you are 15 and two and a bubble team would be expected to go 13 and four against that schedule, you're two wins above bubble. Um, and, and basically what it does is it, you know, allows you to look at not predictively the strength of a team. That's what things like our her hoop stats ratings are for. That's to predict games. Um, but those take into account margin of victory. If you're looking at a metric that is meant to predict games and, you don't really want to take into account margin of victory when you're deciding things uh, like which seed a team should get or who should get into the tournament. Um, you don't want to incentivize coaches to run up the score. So uh, wins above bubble, really, all, all it takes into account is wins and losses, whether you win the game or not. So I think it's a really valuable tool for looking at resumes in terms of analyzing the past, not predicting the future, um, to, to kind of look at which team maybe has the best resume based on what they have accomplished in wins and losses against their schedule so far. Um, I know there's been, this is another one of those things where I think, uh, you know, like the, the pro college crossover type thing where this conversation happens a lot on the men's side. And I never see it on the women's side, this conversation about what would be a better way to analyze teams, resumes, who gets in, who doesn't. Um, I would like to sort of, sort of get the ball rolling on this conversation more on the women's side as well. We do obviously have a much, upgraded system this year with the net compared to what we had before with the RPI, but there's definitely still room for improvement. Yeah, agreed. I mean, there's always room for improvement. And I think even the net and I mean, the way that the tournaments defeated on both sides, right. It's just, they try to make it as objective as possible with coming out with these new rankings, but it's still a group of people in a room trying to figure out what team has the best resume and should get the highest seed. And I don't know how you get away from that because I mean, I think the nature of college basketball and the number of teams and the conferences and stuff just, you know, that it lends itself more towards that. I mean, I guess you could just do it 
based off of straight wins, but then would it incentivize teams to play the tougher schedules and whatever. So it is just a jumbo mess to try to figure out in any way, but... I, I like the stat in that it's a, I feel like a very easy to understand like metric of strength of schedule. I feel like strength of schedule measures especially tend to get a little tricky, but I think this one is, you know, easy to comprehend and a good way to look at things. And I think, I mean, no surprise, you see the top two on your calculation is South Carolina and Texas A&M, SEC teams, top of the SEC. SEC is incredible this year, so that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, the SEC is is just stacked. Like we we talked about at the top, you know, uh, Charlie Cream has over half the league getting into the tournament right now, um, and and so yeah, if if anyone uh, if any listeners want to go look at those calculations Megan just mentioned, uh, they're on my Twitter page. Maybe I should pin that tweet. I'll pin that tweet so people can go look at it. Um, but it's uh, I'll probably update those, you know, every week or I don't know whenever I get a chance. I have a day job too, so. We'll see, but uh, throughout the season, um, you know, for the rest of the season, to see which teams are at the top. Um, but, but I really just think think that it's a it's a valuable conversation to have about like what what are we looking at when we decide? Like you said, it's just a bunch of people in the committee, you know, human beings who all have sort of their own biases and, and whatever. Um, and most of them are athletic directors, right, on the committee. And so they got all sorts of stuff going on. It's not like they're just sitting around all day watching games like broadcasters are. Um, I don't know necessarily why we do it that way. But um, so, I mean, people talk about the eye test, but I don't know if these people have enough time to to watch enough games to be able to perform the eye test. And, you know, even if they do, I mean, you can watch game after game and it's, it's sort of split in hairs sometimes still between team number 47 and team number 48 or whatever it is um it's not like it's it's obvious when you watch those two teams you know once or twice what which team is better um and sometimes you watch team only one game and you catch them on their off night and you have a a skewed view of how good they are so so i yeah i hope we can get away from eye test stuff and and get more towards metric which i think we're doing the net is gradually you know moving in that direction and i hope we can continue to move in that direction in the coming coming years yeah, I agree. I think the more you can take away the subjectivity of it, I think I just in general too for like, I would hate to be on my committee because how much slack or flack do they get about how they seated every year? I'm sure. I mean, you see the amount of flack that like Charlie Cream gets on Twitter, and I'm like, all he's trying to do is predict it, guys. You do realize he doesn't like make the bracket, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i mean it's always fun to talk about the bracket right i mean i think it part of why they may never really go to a true number system is i'm so much of the hype around march madness is who's in who's out who's seating where what region what are the matches gonna be and they make it into like what like a three hour show on selection sunday on the men's side there's a lot of fun of march madness in that i mean i enjoy it i'll be working on some bracket stuff so keep an eye out for that we'll be trying to make our own predictions at hoops that's of what at least the top of the bracket looks like i'm calling myself our certified bracketologist now because i took joe lenardi's class over the summer he does oh. inside bracketology so um look be on the lookout for that this year if you're a nerd like me and care about trying to figure that stuff out yeah but, look at you megan i mean <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what I did with my COVID summer, other than working that day job. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, 
check out definitely the Wins Above the Bubble stuff on Calvin's Twitter, too. I think it's interesting and something to keep an eye on as well. I think it's a really good metric of trying to look at the strength of schedule. And I think you, I mean, you get a clear picture of where some of the conferences are and stuff by looking at this. Um, and you've also got that weird percentage above the bubble, which I love because it's a weird season. So the straight numbers are hard to interpret because everyone's played somewhere between like 20 and five games so no one's really all that even so yeah wow megan i did not know you were certified that is that's cool you are official <laughs> you are you are legit <laughs> so yeah i guess uh, i can call it legit <laughs> <laughs> that is that's amazing but um yeah the the win percentage above bubble is um I, I just put that on there, you know, I don't know if there's a better way to do it or not, but like you said, everyone's played a different number of games. And I think when, uh, when, um, it's a Terp, that Twitter account put out the wins above bubble using, so mine uses, uh, the her hoop stats ratings. Um, and, but when it's a Terp put out, um, the, the wins above bubble using Ken Massey ratings, I think someone, uh, I forget, gave you a bunch of hate on Twitter or something for UConn being so low. <laughs> and uh, yes, that's, that's it's not a measure of yeah, who the best no. team in the country is, to clarify. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think it would be nice if we had better understanding about that. But um, it's also to the point, though, that you brought up about win percentage above bubble. One of the reasons why UConn is so low is also, and we say so low, they're like 11th. I forget exactly. They don't have it in front of me, but it's not like they're not in the top 50 or anything crazy. But one of the reasons why they're lower than maybe they should be also is because they haven't played as many games as some of these other teams, and you can't have wins above bubble if you don't have wins, period. And and uh, so win percentage above bubble, I just I put that in there on there as well to level the playing field a little bit for teams like UConn or maybe like like Michigan who or Rutgers who have had some uh, COVID games canceled and had to go on pause. Um, what your winning percentage would be, obviously over that of a bubble team so UConn jumps a lot of teams if you look at if you sort it by wins above bubble versus win percentage above bubble UConn moves up quite a bit um so so definitely yeah look at that column as well yeah for sure so yeah lots of fun stuff coming I mean March obviously not far from being around the corner though it feels like even in 2021 these weeks go by pretty slow so it's it's still a little ways out but Excited to see how things shake out over the next few weeks. Thanks, Calvin, for hopping on to talk about all of this with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. As always, make sure to rate, like, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps more people find us in our work. Also, be sure you're checking out the stats site, herhoopstats.com. Our Her Hoop Stats ratings came out just over a week ago, so lots of cool stuff there, plus all of our WNBA free agency trackers, CBA, Q&As, tons of different stuff on the site, so make sure you're checking that out. Also, subscribe to our newsletter. It is free on Substack, and make sure you're following us on social media at Her Hoop Stats on all platforms. Thanks again for listening. Oh.